Today's reading is from Galatians chapter 5, and we'll be reading from verses 13 to 26. You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one humbly, serve one hum, another humbly in love, for the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. If you bite and devour one another, watch out, or you will be destroyed by each other. So I say, live by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other, so that you are not to do whatever you want. But if you are led by the Spirit... You are not under the law. The acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions and envy, drunkenness, orgies and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited provoking and envying one another. This is God's word. Our Father God, we pray that your spirit would help us to understand his words for your glory and our joy. Amen. What does true freedom look like? 2009, George Clooney uh, starred in the film Up in the Air. He's a successful executive paid to travel around America, fly around, basically firing people. That's his job. He lives in hotels, he flies first class, and he's not tied to any place. And he develops this philosophy. He starts actually giving um, lectures, uh, sort of self-help course lectures, in which he says, we are sharks. We are meant to be solitary creatures. The best life, the richest life, The life that works is when you are free from encumbrances. He says your life is like a rucksack full of stuff. He says the heaviest things, the thing that will bog you down more than anything, the thing that will hold you back and that keep you from fulfilling yourself are relationships. They are the heaviest thing and you are better off without them. He despises his, um, his family. They, they, they're sort of tied, as he sees it, to their little town, tied to each other, stuck in these pathetic little lives where they just revolve around each other and who's done this and who said that and who's married each other. And he, he, just, he just despises them. It is a movie that basically plays out our dominant cultural narrative, which is that the best life to live, the fullest life, is the one where I am true to myself, where I'm free of the constraints of others, the expectations of others, and perhaps especially the needs of others. If I can live like that, then I am free, and I will be happy. 
And the movie does seem to endorse that. He's about to rack up 10 million air miles, which will give him a a card that basically gives him free flights for the rest of his life. He started seeing a woman who is the, she's the female version of him, to be honest. And they've started this perfect relationship, just casual sex, no attachment, no commitment, just meet up when they see each other. He has absolutely everything he wants, everything he speaks about, and everything that he publicly endorses comes to him. And it all comes crashing down. It turns out uh, he falls in love with her. But to her, he is just a distraction. She has a family, and he is just her bit on the side. And she would never leave her family for him. He's just not worth it. Not for a family. And he realizes he's free of all constraints, free to live a miserable, little, pathetic existence where he matters to nobody. And the legacy of his life will be precisely nothing. He discovers far too late, actually, the truth of Galatians 5. That true freedom is not turning in on myself to focus on me and my needs and my desires. True freedom is actually opening out to to love and serve other people and live for them. And to do so through the power of the Holy Spirit. You'll see there's uh, the points that will take us through. We're just going to do the first half of uh, uh, this section of Galatians 5, 13 to 18 tonight. And then we'll look at 19 to 26 next week. Firstly, Christ has set you free. Verse 13, you, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free. Christianity is freedom. It is the message of liberation. Jesus came to set us free. Uh, That's how the chapter began. Do you remember verse 1 of chapter 5? It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. The whole of this section is grounded in this truth. So before we go any further, let's just remember. Let's just consider what exactly does he mean when he says we're free? Well, we're free as a thing because we weren't before. We were born slaves, slaves to sin and death, slaves to sin. That is, our selfish desires. We do what we want, yay, but can we stop ourselves? No. We're enslaved by our desires. And we're slaves to death. The shadow of death hangs over all of us. And the thought of God's judgment makes that a terrifying prospect. But Jesus came to die for us, to set us free. Now what that freedom really means, I think, was illustrated beautifully last week. You probably heard that the, uh, the American evangelist Billy Graham died, finally, at the age of 99. And in his final interview, a few weeks beforehand, he was asked, how do you want to be remembered? And he said, I hope I will be remembered as someone who was faithful, faithful to God, faithful to the gospel of Jesus Christ, faithful to the calling God gave me, not only as an evangelist, but as a husband, a father, and a friend. In other words... If getting into heaven was a matter of living a good life, living out God's law, keeping God's rules, if that's how you got into heaven, if that's how you become acceptable to God, well then Billy Graham would be at the very front of the queue. The amazing thing is the next words he spoke in the interview. Because after speaking about his desire to be remembered as faithful, as one who's kept God's law, who has lived a good life, he said these wonderful words, which 
They're up on the screen as well. But I won't be in heaven because I've preached to large crowds or because I've tried to live a good life. I'll be in heaven for one reason. Many years ago, I put my faith and trust in Jesus Christ, who died on the cross to make our forgiveness possible and rose again from the dead to give us eternal life. Do you know you will go to, if you will go to heaven when you die, you can by committing your life to Jesus Christ today. It's hard not to slip into his American accent when reading those wonderful words. You can imagine him saying them with passion. See, that is the freedom of the gospel. It's freedom from the fear of God's judgment. It's freedom from the fear that I might not have done enough. It's freedom from the fear I might not be good enough. It's freedom from the fear that my deeds won't weigh enough in the scales of God's justice. Freedom from having to earn heaven. It's a freedom that means if you had died on Thursday and found yourself next to Billy Graham in the queue at the pearly gates, that's not who you want to be standing behind, is it? You know, if you were, if that was you, you would not need to be afraid. Because the gospel says God has done everything, everything in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ for our salvation. Nothing left for you and me to do. He's done enough to save Billy Graham and he's done enough to save you and to save me. That's the heart of Paul's message to the Galatians. The heart of what the Holy Spirit has been saying to us as we've looked at this letter week by week. God has done everything necessary for our salvation in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So we are free It's the message of liberation. And now Paul turns to answer the question in chapters 5 and 6. Okay, what does that mean for how we live? What does being set free mean for how we live? Uh, Negatively, he answered in verses 1 to 13. Freedom from sin is not about uh, putting yourself under the law, trying to earn your way into God's good books. That's just more slavery. Now he answers positively in verses 13 to 18. Freedom is about loving service. And shockingly, firstly, he tells us to use our freedom to be a slave of others. Verse 13. You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. The gospel sets you free to live as you want, but the gospel also changes what you want. It changes your desires. And so he says, don't use your freedom to return to the slavery of sin and self. Don't use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Now, flesh here is not the physical body. He's not saying kill all physical appetite and desire. Physical bodies and physical appetites are good. When we get to the new creation, when God restores the world and we, um, to use the jargon, we go to heaven. Actually, heaven comes to us. God is going to transform the world into a new physical place that's perfect and give us new physical bodies. We'll eat and drink and we'll laugh and we'll enjoy one another in physical bodies. Now, there's nothing wrong with physical appetites. Flesh here is shorthand for the sinful self, the old self. It's about my selfish, sinful desires. That's what he means by flesh here. And actually, interestingly, in this verse 13, he's using military language. Jesus, if you like, has come like an invading army and liberated us from the misery of the slave master sin. 
And the word for opportunity in verse 13, do not use your freedom to indulge the, um, as an opportunity literally for the flesh. That, that phrase there is a, is a military phrase for don't, don't give a, a bridgehead for the enemy. He's saying, look, when we sin, we invite Satan back in behind enemy lines. We invite him into territory Jesus has already liberated, to undefended territory now, to attack us behind the lines. Don't do that. Don't do that. Now, we're probably used to to Paul warning us not to lose our blood-bought freedom. But what he says at the end of verse 13 is shocking. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. That word serve is the same word as used throughout Galatians for be a slave, be in slavery. Don't lose your freedom, he says, by living under the law, by trying to earn your way into heaven. Don't lose your freedom by indulging your sinful nature. But do lose your freedom by being a slave to other people. You see, the essence of sin is turning in on self to serve me. And the clearest evidence that Jesus has broken the power of sin in my life is when I start turning back out to love God and serve other people. See, the heart is a muscle. You know, the medics here are saying, thank you for that wonderful insight. What next? Uh, But not just the physical organ of the heart is a muscle. I mean, it's a muscle as in the heart as the center of love and devotion is a muscle that, that needs exercise and that grows like all muscles with use. If you live to only serve and love yourself, your heart will shrivel and shrink to the size of me and my desires. But when you turn outwards, when you open yourselves to live and love and serve others, your heart will expand and grow as it's flexed and worked and stretched. Your love, your joy, your capacity for happiness will grow and become richer and deeper and fuller. See, God designed us to find fulfillment and purpose in serving others. That doesn't come naturally though, does it? Naturally, we feel this desire to turn back in on me, to put me first. And so we need to start by praying. Praying that God would expand our hearts to love others more. Pray that God would give you a heart to love others, to want to love others. Start praying for others. And then start doing something. Because feeling follows actions. Start to give your time to listen to people even when they're not very interesting. Start to give your money to provide for people who are more needy than you. Start to give yourself to befriend uh, the lonely or the awkward. Give yourself to serve your church family here, the children, the internationals, trafficked women, going on the Haringey graft. There are so many ways to serve. Give yourself to serve your neighborhood and your city. All of us walk past need all the time. And all of us have the opportunity to to serve in the greatest way possible by bringing the gospel of salvation to people. Sin turns us inward. The gospel turns us back out. Live outwards. Use your freedom to be a slave of others, verse 13. Verse 14 then, fulfill the law by loving others. 
For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. If you bite and devout each other, watch out or you will be destroyed by each other. Now, the breakthrough movie for Arnold Schwarzenegger was The Terminator in 1985, a long time ago, but it's a classic, so you ought to watch it. It really is a classic of the action genre. Uh, Schwarzenegger is very early in his career, so he only just switched from being Mr. Universe, uh, bodybuilder. So his dialogue is a bit clunky and the acting rather wooden, unlike his later movies. Um, but that's all right, because he's playing an indestructible evil robot. <laughs> you think, typecasting. <laughs> they saw him at the audition and thought, I think we've got the role for you, Mr. Schwarzenegger. And uh, the good guys, though, eventually triumph, and the indestructible cyborg from the future is destroyed at the end of the movie. Huzzah. Dial forward to 1991. You know, that's still before some of you were born. And Terminator 2 comes out. He did say, I'll be back. And, you know, lo and behold, Terminator 2 appear. Arnie's back. How is that possible? He was destroyed at the end of Terminator 1. But the, the much more surprising, the great twist that had all audiences <gasps> gasping in 1991 was that Arnie was not only back as the Terminator, but he was the good guy in Terminator 2. I haven't ruined the movie. Don't worry. Watch it. It's brilliant. Uh, and this is what's going on here. You've had, we've had four and a half chapters of Paul saying to the Galatians, get away from the law. Stop trying to live under the law. The law will only destroy you and condemn you. The last thing you want is the law. Thank goodness that God has abolished the law for you in Jesus Christ. And then we get to 5.13 and the law's back and the law is good. What's going on? I mean, how can he suddenly say the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command? Love your neighbor as yourself. Well, what are you talking about the law for, Paul? We'll look at it in detail and then we will step back for a moment to think about how we relate to the law more broadly as Christians. But notice here, as he talks about the law now, it's not a bunch of tick box technical rules that we are to adhere to legalistically. It is summarized here as love your neighbor, love other human beings, love one another. True love for God always, always translates into love for people. And God's law helps us work out what that means in the nitty-gritty of daily life. True love for God means we'll always love and care for those who are made in his image. And the law helps us work out, okay, what is that what does that actually look like for me in, in, in the realities and the cut and thrust of my life? Well, the law gives us concrete ways to understand that. The alternative to living out God's law is the false freedom of selfish individualism. Verse 15, if you bite and devour each other, watch out or you will be destroyed by each other. That is an empty freedom where we all live for ourselves and trample however subtly or ignore each other. And the end result is misery all round. See, they, do you notice in verse 15, they think they're consuming one another, feeding off one another, getting what they need from others. But they end up being consumed. The end result is misery all round, even for me. But the end result in verse 14 is very different. It's a community committed to the good of one another. A community of love. And it's a wonderful thing where you see it happen. There's a family I know well, the uh, um, 
and the Dawsons who live uh, just near here, known by many of us. And years ago, they, they took God's law seriously as people who've been saved by Jesus. And they've always committed themselves to love other people. When Paul and Penny were, it was just the two of them. They loved people generously and sacrificially. And as uh, God gave them children, the children grew up surrounded by this parental love and seeing their parents love other people. So when the children grew up, they encouraged their parents to adopt others who were needy. And they adopted two children with complex medical and emotional needs into their family of already five children. And they pour out their lives caring for people spiritually, physically, practically, emotionally. There's a a couple who've lost, tragically lost their eldest son in their church and they're living with them at the moment because when people have poured themselves out in love the way they have, they become rich and beautiful. They become the sort of people you want to be with. And going around their house is a wonderful place to go. It's not full of money. They have seven children. (laughs) It's chaos at times. But there is just something wonderful about seeing a house built on a legacy of loving service of others. That's one family. Here in church, that's God's vision for us. To be a place where we don't come to, to be served, to get what I can get, to see who's useful. But we come to serve. And as we do so, if I come here to get what I can get, I serve me. If I come here to serve you and you have the same attitude, there are 200 people here serving me and 200 people serving you. And that is a wonderful way to live. It takes years to hone and mold our hearts into that shape, but start now. Start now. And what you, what you see grow is beautiful. It's a costly and difficult life, but it's one which has a legacy when, it, when you die. We've been reading in Hebrews 11.4 about uh, the, the Old Testament saints, and it says, though being dead, they still speak. And when you meet people who've given themselves in love to other people, not only do they have joy as well as scars, but they have a legacy too. Lives transformed and touched and improved by them. Lives that, that go on. They have an impact beyond their own, their own circle and their own time. And the question for, for many of us here, at the younger end of life, many of you here, at the younger end of life, is which track will you launch yourself on? Will you try to get away with serving others as little as possible? Or will you trust God? And will you head towards a life that is poured out for others? And a legacy which will last forever. So you see the the law is not bad in itself. Because the law helps us work out how to do that. What does it mean to do that? Last week we heard the warning from 5, 1 to 12. Don't use the law as a ladder. Don't use it as as rules to, to, to climb up to God. To build up credits for God. Don't use it as a ladder that you climb. Or as Spurgeon put it, don't, don't view the law as the rod that, stand, that sort of threatens you with your, I look up and I see the law and I know how far short I fall of God and the law threatens me with punishment. Instead, he says, don't see it as the road over you, as the rod over you. See it as the road under you. 
showing you the way to live, the way to freedom and fulfillment and value. Jesus has forgiven us. The law no longer threatened us. We're no longer required to, 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 to meet the law's demands. Instead, the law is a road, not a rod. A road under us that shows us how to live a life of freedom, fulfillment, and value. Actually, there's a little box at the bottom. Uh, just to, um, if you want to think a little bit more about, okay, how am I supposed to think about it? I'm a bit confused about how I should think about the Old Testament law if I'm a Christian. Uh, what is the point of it? Uh, three things about it. One, it's a mirror that shows us our need for Christ. This is what the reformers like Calvin taught. It's a mirror that shows us our need for Christ because it, it shows God's perfect standard. And as I look at that, I don't look so good. And so I realize I need a savior. Secondly, it's a curb. So the law helps to restrain sin because it, it provides for punishments for sin. And so it stops us just doing whatever we want. It, it acts as a curb. And thirdly, it's a guide. For those who've been set free in Christ, it's a guide helping us know how to live. There you go. That's basically the three ways that the law applies. Now, for most of us, though, I guess actually the biggest issue is not understanding how the law applies, but it's finding the desire in our hearts and the strength to follow it. You know, if we're honest, it's not a, the problem isn't up here with the law telling us to love other people. The, the problem is in here. It's a heart thing. Where does the power come that will enable me to, to pour myself out in love for other people? The answer Verses 16 to 18, when we wonder where the power is to live like Jesus lived. The power comes from Jesus' own Holy Spirit. Verse 16, so I say, live by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. The answer for the longing for change, the the longing to break the addictive patterns of sin in our lives, the lust that brings crippling shame, the pride that poisons relationships, the cutting comments that just slip out and do damage. The power for change doesn't come from rules and fear. I'd better be good enough. It comes from walking by the Spirit, living by his power and principle. And notice too, it doesn't say in verse 16 that if you live by the Spirit, you must not gratify the desires of the flesh. It doesn't say that, does it? It says you will not The Spirit provides the power we lack. Uh, We watched um, The World's Strongest Man over Christmas. High culture in our house. Um, It was that or Terminator 2. So we went for World's Strongest Man. It is classic Christmas television. You can watch it on catch-up, and it's brilliant every year. And it was won this year by a Brit, Eddie Hall. Get in. Um, He's also the world deadlift champion. He can lift 500 kilos Half a ton, deadlift. Now, it's good at New Year to be ambitious, to set targets for oneself. So, I could set myself this next year the target of beating Eddie Hall in an arm wrestle. Don't laugh. I could train really hard every day. I could eat enormous amounts of food to, uh, just to add that last little bit of bulk um, to get me there. Uh, <laughs> I could, I could banish the sort of negative thoughts that you're all indulging and get myself a, a visual coach to help me visualize victory. But for all that, it is an unfair contest. He is a six foot three, 29 stone strong man. And I am not. <laughs> 
look, if I work out all year and do those things, I might be able to extend the length of our arm wrestling bout from maybe one second to one and a half. You know, I might be able to extend how long I hold out. But it is inevitable he is going to beat me eventually. And it is like that with our sinful desires, if we're honest. We can make resolutions, we can develop self-discipline, and those are good things. But while it is a battle between the desires that I have and the discipline that holds them back, it is an unfair fight. Eventually, eventually discipline gets tired. Desire does not. Eventually, I'll give in. Now, working hard, developing discipline, it'll extend the length of time I can hold out for. But I'll still get tired, and the desire will not, and so I will give in. That is until we turn to Christ and receive the power of the Holy Spirit. For he is almighty God living in us. Now this is crucial. The Holy Spirit is not like anabolic steroids, giving a a boost to our self-discipline like a Russian athlete. Uh, He does that. Um, Was that a little bit controversial? (laughs) Sorry. Um, (laughs) Allegedly. um, (laughs) He does that, but much more important, in curling, really. I mean, why? (laughs) Anyway, it it beats me. Um, The Holy Spirit does sort of boost us, our strength. But he does something much more important than just boost our strength, our discipline. He breathes new desires into us. So that it's not just a battle between the desire to do sin and and the discipline that says, I know I shouldn't, I know I shouldn't, I know I shouldn't. Oh, I've got too weak. Now it's a battle between the desire to do sin, the desire to serve me, and the desire to serve God. For the Holy Spirit works at the heart level, breathing new desires into us. A desire no longer just to, to sin, but a desire now to honour God, a desire to serve other people. The Holy Spirit is the game changer because he breathes new desires and new power into us. But here's the thing, to walk by his power and principle is not a life of zen-like calm and inner peace, being led by the Holy Spirit. What does that mean here? Verse 18 says, if you are led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. What does that mean? Verse 17, for the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other, so that you do not do whatever you want. Given that I've embarrassed myself with my low culture, let me uh, recover things a little bit uh, with um, some ancient history. Have you heard of Thucydides' trap? No. What is Thucydides' trap, I hear you ask? Thucydides' trap. Thucydides was uh, the ancient historian that many people have studied at school. And he was a Greek historian. And he observed with the... uh, Sparta was at the time the dominant city-state in in Greece, which was... Rather than a country, it was a, a series of city-states that were competing. Sparta was top dog. And he observed that wherever you've got a dominant power and a new power emerges, there is never just a transfer of power. There is always conflict between them. 
And he said that there just seems to be no way for an old power to wane and a new power to, to grow without war. Thucydides' trap. Wherever there's a growth of a new power, there's going to be a war. He saw it with um, Sparta being challenged by Athens. But we see it with our sinful desires. Verse 17. The flesh desires what is contrary to the spirit and the spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other. See, sinful desires do not just give up with a, without a fight. When you've spent years indulging and training yourself in sinful habits and patterns of life, they become deep-rooted and gnarled and resistant. And it's not like you become a Christian and they say, oh, well, okay, that's fine. We'll just, you know, pack our bags and leave. Uh, welcome in, Holy Spirit. It doesn't work like that with sinful desires. And this can feel very disconcerting and, and worrying as a Christian. You think, uh, the Holy Spirit now lives in me. I'm at peace with God because Jesus has paid for my sins. I, oh, this, I'm just going to know nothing but inner peace. And instead you feel this massive struggle of, uh, of fleshly desires, sinful desires, and, and this desire to please God and others. And it's, and it's like you don't know who you are. You imagine that the Holy Spirit in you means, well, I'll no longer feel sinful desires because the Holy Spirit's in me. So everything I desire will be pure and wonderful. And it's just not like that. The new power arrives and the old power does not pack up and move out. He fights back and there is an almighty war going on inside you. And many of us here tonight know exactly what I mean. And we're, we're exhausted and confused by the struggle. It's interesting, there were times in the life of Martin Luther, the reformer, when he looked at the inner conflict that was tearing him up, this conflict between his desire to please God and his desire to serve himself. And he, he saw some of the thoughts that still bubbled up from inside him, so impure, so ugly. And he thought, I just can't be a Christian if I feel like this, if there's just such such mess inside me how could I be a Christian with this sort of mess inside me and he writes that he, reading Galatians 5.17 gave him great comfort great comfort they are in conflict with each other the spirit and the flesh if the Holy Spirit really lives in you see he realised from this verse that inner conflict is not an indication that you are not God's child it's the proof that you are The Christian life is marked by inner conflict. The desire to, to please God and love others, but also the ongoing desire to please myself and satisfy my sinful urges. It is marked by conflict, but it is not wonderfully. Wonderfully, it is not marked by condemnation. Verse 18, but if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. If you're led by the Spirit, if you trust in Jesus Christ and so the Spirit lives in you, His Spirit lives in you, the law no longer stands over you, threatening you, accusing you, exposing your sin. For Jesus Christ has stepped between us and the law and the rod of the law fell on Him. He was punished for our failures and He did climb up the ladder of the law. He fulfilled it perfectly. He has, he has stood between us. We no longer relate to God through the law. Jesus has fulfilled the law and Jesus has suffered its punishment. And so God has set us free. Free from slavery to sin and death. Free from uh, 
free from slavery to my own desires, free even from God's law, free for a life of loving and serving others, a life that counts. And wonderfully, he hasn't saved us and then just left us to get on with it. He's given us his law so that we know how to live. And best of all, he's given us his spirit so that we're empowered to do it. And a question each of us have to keep asking ourselves every day really is, what sort of life do I want to live? Do I want to live a life that makes sense in my culture, in 21st century London? A life where I live for me, I'm true to self. Well, I am the final arbiter of what's right and wrong. And where if things don't work for me, I leave them. Or do I want to live a life that makes sense to God? One that's rich and fulfilling. One that's sacrificial and difficult. But one that makes a difference in the lives of others. One that earns the commendation of God that is open to you and me and that Billy Graham has now heard which is well done, good and faithful servant. All of us can hear that. The question is, which way will you walk? If you trust in Jesus, God has set you free. Now, which way will you walk? Let's pray. Our Father God, we thank you so much for the freedom we have in Christ Jesus. And we pray that you would help us not to use that freedom to serve self. We pray instead that you would give us a clear understanding that sees that the richest, the fullest, the most valuable life, the life that leaves a legacy that lasts, is a life, a life given in service to others. Help us to, to see that as a privilege, to tread in the footsteps of the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself to serve us. And we pray, Father, that we would know the power of your spirit, teaching us to walk away from sin, helping us to fight against sin, and empowering us to love others. And we ask all this for your great glory's sake. Amen.